Hello and welcome back to the Drift Proof Podcast, everyone. So this is episode seven. We are cranking along here. Um, and just for anyone who might be new or um, even like a returning listener, I just want to kind of go over this podcast. It's called Drift Proof because it's supposed to help you see life from other people's eyes and figure out what they're doing with their lives, why it's meaningful to them, and pretty much how to protect yourself from feeling meaningless or nihilistic or depressed in life. Um, I'm going into psychology, so that's a huge focus of mine. I'm, I'm a very big fan of depression, and that sounds weird to say that out loud, but I do like depression because I think um, it's something that can be managed through finding meaning in life, changing your lifestyle. It's something you have a lot of control over. So this podcast is kind of just supposed to help you with that. I run into a lot of people every day who are very, very anxious or depressed. Obviously, I work in a psych hospital, so that's not really the norm. You know, it's kind of the extreme cases, but those feelings are way more widespread than people want to acknowledge or realize. So this podcast is just a way to look through the eyes of people in their early 20s or I'm going to have people on that are, you know, older and more experienced in life, but just people who are trying to figure out their lives and doing their best job as they can to find meaning and give back and make their life more about, you know, other people than just themselves. So today I have a special guest on. They are always special guests. Um, his name is Nathan Bourne. So Nathan is in a program right now where he's actually going to get his doctorate in pharmacy and an MBA all in one shot. So that's an awesome program. And he also is, in my estimation, an overachiever. Um, I've known him for about a year and he's very, very interesting. He has great insight on life. He also is a homosexual. I shouldn't say that. He's gay. <laughs> homosexual sounds worse. This podcast isn't supposed to be like totally a gay focused podcast, but a lot of people in my life happen to be in the LGBTQ community um, just because I'm gay. So that's a lot of my friends and community and people around me. But we're going to talk about pharmacy today. We're going to talk about what you can do with a pharmacy degree. He was also a star swimmer in his high school. So we're going to talk about student athletics and how that shaped his life. Coming out of the closet, we talk a little bit on and we're also just going to kind of brush up on the COVID vaccine what his opinions are on that and just other little things about his life and he has great insight about the world of school athletics and pharmacy so I hope you guys enjoy this episode as always thank you so much for listening and without any further ado here's Nathan this is Nathan Bourne you want to say hello hi everybody so Nathan and I have known each other for a little over a year now, and uh, he's very interesting and he's totally an overachiever and someone I wanted to have on the podcast. Um, so did you want to tell anybody kind of just like some fun facts about you, maybe your age, where you're from, uh, if you want like nationality, anything that you think is interesting about you? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm flattered that you called me an overachiever. I usually get the, the butt end of the joke when I'm hanging out with you, but <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, so my name is Nathan, as you've said, and um, I'm from Angola, Indiana, which is a small town in um, northeastern corner of the state. Um, but about three years ago, my parents moved to Salina, Ohio, which, as you would probably have guessed, is smaller than Angola, Indiana. So my entire life, I've grown up in small towns in the Midwest which hasn't really been that fun um, for someone who is a part of the LGBTQ community. So that kind of does come with some limitations and not a lot of role models in the world as you grow up. Um, currently, I'm attending the University of Finley, and I'm majoring in pharmacy and business administration with a focus on healthcare management. And I right. just finished my fourth year of swimming. So I'm no longer a college athlete anymore. And so this is my first year where I finally get to be a student as opposed to a student athlete. And so I'm really excited to see um, what this year brings as opposed to what years past have brought. Okay, so can we talk really fast? I have a question. It's just kind of a silly one, but I want to get it out in the air. So what is the Q yeah, in sure. LGBTQ? <laughs> what does that mean? The Q? Yeah. Okay, so the Q that I was raised, um, so when I was growing up, the Q stood for queer. 
um, which generally just meant someone who wasn't quite figuring it out. Um, but as time has gone on, and so I'm, I'm involved in a lot of activism groups on campus, Q has changed to mean questioning. Oh, cool. um, I like the that reason better. behind that is, say it again. I like that better. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I do too as well. And um, so just a little personal snippet there when I was maybe a freshman um, in high school, someone on one of my sports teams had accused me of having a crush on this girl on the basketball team. <laughs> and as we are all aware now, that obviously was not true. But um, once I tried to like stand up for myself and say like, no, like that's not true. He was like, yeah, we all know it's true because you're a queer. And so that word held a lot of negative connotation for me. And I guess it kind of depends as like on who you're talking to. Like to mm -hmm. me, the word faggot doesn't mean anything. No, I'm the exact same way. As a joke. And like, that's like our, our banter. That's how we work. But queer is something that like strikes an emotional chord for me. So I think that's why they changed the letter at the end of that little alphabet okay. mafia there. No, I'm happy to change it. So I was talking to a transgender on the at the psych unit I work at, and he said it was queer. I'm like, that's way more offensive than faggot, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and I was just yeah, curious sure. what it was. I'm like, that hits the ears wrong. Um, okay, and then I also want to talk about your swimming. So you, let's get this straight. You're not a diver, right? You're a swimmer? Correct. Okay, so like, did the divers and swimmers get along? Because I have a friend that was a diver. So something that was really intriguing was we only had two divers on our team. And while I would say we got along outside of the pool, um, when we were at the pool area, it seemed like a constant competition for time, like who was going to get which lanes, or if we were both practicing at the same time, these two people would take up a large portion of the pool. And that would cause a lot of resentment for the 50 other people that had to squeeze into these two or four lanes for like a morning shakeout swim, or maybe a test set. So that could be a little bit frustrating at times. But currently, the diver that was in my grade, um, he just graduated with me and he's coaching on the team now. And so I get to see him on the weekends. And because I'm not a, a teammate anymore, I'm a swammer, as we like to call it. Um, I actually hang out with him on the weekends and, and see him. And it's really nice and get to know him outside of the pool. So I think they're both, they're really cool people. But this year we have a lot more divers, but I don't know them as well as teams. Okay. And then for swimming, as far as that goes, was that like a good environment or was it super critical and like body image related. I'm just curious what it's like to be a swimmer, especially in like college too, it must be more competitive. Yeah, for sure. Um, the swimming team is anywhere is a very interesting environment to be a part of. Um, growing up, while I don't consider myself ugly now by any means, um, I grew up with a brother who many considered to be a Calvin Klein model. Like they thought he, he was the most beautiful person they've ever seen. And so I was, I was always growing up around these comments and my brother's name's Kyler. And they would say, Kyler, like you should be a model and Kyler, you should go do these things and, and use these talents that you have. And, and I never got that affirmation growing up. And so I never really felt as confident about my body. And so going out, going throughout high school, um, it took a lot of confidence building. And then when I finally got to college and I, I was no longer around my constant comparison, even though I had kind of outgrown it at the time. I felt a lot more confident about my body. And I think a lot of the swimmers on the team um, really didn't care about body as much as, are you fast? Are you gonna contribute to the team? Are you drama? Or are you someone who's gonna get along with everybody else? Are you gonna carry your grades? Or are you gonna be someone who's gonna make us have steady tables? And so that was more of what this team cared about. Now, when it came to coaching staff, um, that was a little bit more of a toxic environment. Um, the coach expected a lot of 
perfection. He expected you to respect his time, but he didn't feel as though he had to respect yours in return. Um, there was a lot of ways looking back now that as, as I've talked with past swimmers that we view certain situations as almost abuse, even that we were just like, well, we're just used to that. That's just the way that the team works. Mm -hmm. That's the way. And a lot of student athletes can probably relate to that. Like their coach said, do this. And so I have to do it. That's why I'm here. I'm getting paid. He's my boss. I have to do it. And like, that really shouldn't be how teams are situated. And it, it kind of, it kind of throws a bit of unproductivity and a little bit of lack of love for the sport in a team. And that kind of infects the whole team. Yeah. I was curious because I think team sports are really amazing and they're actually super important. I think the competition's good and you should have the competition, but I was just kind of, there's like a fine line between it being healthy and then it being negative and toxic. So I was just curious your experience with that. Cause I was talking to my friend Hannah the other day and she said she was like 12 years old and she was in softball and she was a pitcher. And the coach again was kind of like mm, passive aggressive or maybe like abusive, you could call it, but I don't know if it was that far, but um, I was curious what your kind of situation was. Also the brother thing is funny. I was the ugly twin growing up. So that's another comparison, literally the same classes year, everything always around each other. So I get that feeling. That's funny that that came from your home, but not so much the swim team where you're pretty much naked in front of everyone all the time. Yeah, and it's, it's not that it's not that my brother ever, ever called me ugly or anybody. No, ever my, me neither. It was just, it was just the lack of, it was the fact that he got these compliments and he got these put ups and I, I was the lack thereof. Yeah. But well, when I came to school, it was the exact opposite. Everyone was like, who's that kid? I want to know him. And, and that really, really boosted my self-esteem and confidence. And so like, I'm thankful that I had that in the past because mm -hmm. I think it helped with levels of humility in the, in the looks department. Um, and it and builds now, resilience. Yeah. Now I'm comfortable with myself. And so like, I'm very fortunate to not be, at least I hope I don't come across as cocky or conceited when I meet new people. And so like, I, I like that, that character building kind of helped. Yeah, I agree. So it actually made me very much more resilient to people's opinions as, you know, as I got older. So I think it was a beneficial thing that I happened as I was younger. And you see people who are like really attracted their whole life and they don't really have, they don't take suffering as well. Most of the time, you know, they're not as <laughs> equipped to deal with negative statements and I don't know. So I think it's a blessing and a curse, but yeah. It How long me. did Hannah play softball for? Um, their, so their whole family played a lot of team sports. So I don't know how long it was. I'm sure it's four or five years, but mm -hmm. they were all That's in crazy. different sports. Like, when I, it was, it was kind of crazy to hear something start, someone start that long ago. And I, I've been swimming for so long. I think it was my last year was my 17th year swimming total. Oh my God. So, so like, was that, I don't even, yeah, I don't even remember what it's like to not swim. Was that your choice or were your parents pushing that just out of curiosity? Ooh. At first I loved swimming because as a child, you never get tired and right. it's always fun to go see your friends and who doesn't want to swim around in a pool, you know, like everyone says like, let's go to the pool. Like there's usually a positive connotation to that. Um, once I got into middle school and my mom is a volleyball coach and my brother and I have always played volleyball growing up. Um, that was where my heart started to get drugged towards and collegiately and where we were located geographically, men's volleyball was really not going to be in the cards for okay. me or my brother in terms of whether it be scholastically and professionally as we go to get our college degrees or whether that be, I just want to play in high school and see how I do. That really just wasn't kind of an option for us. 
Um, so in middle school, I, I started to lose a lot of love for swimming. Um, okay. But then by the time I got to high school, I was already the star of the swimming team in this tiny town. And I, I really had really huge shoes that after I graduated, someone would have a really difficult time filling. I, I had broken every single record in the eight and under, nine and 10, 11 and 12, 13, 14, and going into high school, the 15 and over records, starting on those and, and now high school records and, and people that were in high school didn't really get to see me club swim, but they just heard, oh, I've seen Nathan in the newspaper. I heard Nathan on the radio. So like, I know he's good at swimming, but they didn't really understand it. And then going into high school, I broke all those records. I went undefeated a couple of years. And by the time I got to my junior year, I had, I've completely fallen in love, out of love with the sport of swimming. And that kind of stinks, but um, my junior year, I just, I kept at it because I figured this is going to be how I pay my way through school. My senior year, I became the only person from my high school to ever make it to state for swimming. Um, and it was a really huge deal. People so what, that I had never talked to before were like, oh my gosh, look at that. That's Nathan. And that was cool. But I just didn't, I was like, yeah, I made it to state. Cool. Was there ever like <laughs> a time in your swimming career where you were like, this is what I could do and be professional and go to the Olympics? Or is that silly to say? I don't know. I've never really played oh, sports like that. I, I definitely did not have that expectation for myself. And I don't think I was really anywhere near that. Okay. Um, when I got to school, I fell in love with swimming a little more because it was nice to swim around people that were my age. My tiny team, the next closest person was my my brother and he was a year and nine months younger than me. Okay. And so it was, it was hard to find peers or people to compete against in high school and um, club. And so going to college, it was nice to see people that had poured the same amount of intent and dedication and passion into their sport and were willing to go just as far because they wanted to succeed just the same. So, so that was a nice change. But as, as the years go on, you start to see it's really just the same. And like the mm -hmm. sport that I'm putting 20 plus hours of backbreaking sweating grueling exercise into every week to pan out for a couple of a hundredths off of your main event at the end of the year really starts to wear on you and so I actually got offered a fifth year due to COVID um, and so I would have been able to swim this year for a fifth year at the University of Finley and I didn't take it I was I was kind of feeling that while I think being a student athlete provides a lot of opportunity and a lot of people don't get to experience what I've experienced. And I'm very thankful for that. Um, I was ready for the next chapter of my life. And I've been looking forward to my fifth year for a while to be that just student. And so like, I've been excited to try a bunch of things this year, like being a teaching assistant. I play in volleyball tournaments on the weekends. I have three day weekends every weekend. So if I want to go visit a friend in a big city, whether it be three hours away, that's an experience that I can now invest in that I once couldn't before. Okay. So, um, what is it, do you normally end after your undergrad, you're done with high school or college sports? I don't really know how that works. Yeah. So in college, you only get four years of eligibility. I didn't know so, that. And it usually depends on how many games you actually compete or participate in. COVID was something really different and weird, but I'm pretty sure that the NCAA offered a fifth year to absolutely everybody okay. in the nation. So that is a really, that's really kind of a conundrum for our coach because now he has to figure out, okay, I have these people that are staying and more people coming in. Yeah. So our team now consists of five years of people and kind of filtering that out. But okay. So um, did we, when you moved from Indiana, did you, how old were you? So my parents moved my sophomore year of college. So I was probably 19. Okay. I, I, I don't even consider where my parents live home so anymore. Were you in college already when that happened, when they moved? Yes, correct. You were in Ohio already. 
No, so I was in Indiana working at a steel factory or no, no a door painting factory. I do not see that for you. That was, yeah, that was a that was a character builder. My dad was always said that everybody should work in a factory one summer so that way they know that what they're going to school for is something that they want to do. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's better. Yeah, yeah, I did manual labor and, for a year and that was horrible. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Valuable lessons, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But um, they moved my sophomore summer. And so when I came back to school, the next summer I went back to Salina, Ohio instead of Angola, Indiana. And so the only time that I've ever been home or my new parents' new home um, has been these past two or three summers waiting tables. Other than that, I really don't know anything about the town. I really don't have any friends there. Um, so I usually just work and then wait to get back to school. And that's where I have my fun. And that's where I get to take a little bit more of a breather. Okay. So what were you going to school for originally until you moved over to the um, new university? So I've always gone to Finley. My I'm parents, sorry, okay. yeah. So my parents moved and I've always gone to Finley. I never changed schools. Um, so pharmacy at the University of Finley is direct admit. And so that means it's zero to six. So I get to go to school for six years as opposed to eight years, but it's considered six years of graduate level program. So as soon as I got here, I started pharmacy classes. Now, if you go to places like Toledo or um, University of Michigan, Ohio State, UND, stuff like that, they do um, four and four or four and two or two and four. And that's just a, a number that represents undergraduate years and graduate years. So I have okay. no undergraduate years, completely graduate school. And so I was accepted to the program and I'll be in that program until it's finished. I don't have to reapply to a graduate program. And then you said it's all or nothing. So if you don't get the six years, you don't even get a bachelor's, correct? Correct. So I, I finished my fourth year. I'm in my fifth year and I have no degree. But when I graduate in six years, I'll have my doctorate in pharmacy and my master's in business admin with a focus in healthcare management. Wow, so, that's, a, that's an impressive. Yeah, it's an investment, but hopefully there's more return on the risk. So why did you pick that major? And did you know that that, field, that program even existed when you were looking at pharmacy or you just got pharmacy because that program existed specifically? So when I was in high school, mm -hmm. I, I was known as the nerd. I was the smart kid. Valedictorian, and, right? Yeah, I graduated valedictorian, which you doesn't matter. Don't and a star swimmer. That if you didn't graduate valedictorian, that, it, that you're not smart because it, it does not mean anything in the long run. How but, many kids were in your school instead of curiosity? Uh, so my class graduated 250. That's still pretty good, though. You should be proud of it. Yeah, I mean, it's decent. But like, you have to think about when you're in high school, you're like, wow, this, I've, I've done all these things and I've accomplished all these things. But really, in the long run, it doesn't really matter. Like, so in the six years that I'm going to college, someone could have learned a trade, gotten an internship, worked there for six years and worked their way up to have the exact same salary as me. And the only difference is they don't have student debt. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's really just a choice about, like everyone has their own choices when it comes to going to school and working. But um, pharmacy for me, actually now that I reflect on it, wasn't something that I had ever thought about until my senior year of high school. Um, I knew that I wanted to do something math and science related because while I was good at English, English did just, just did not fascinate me. It did not enamor me the way that I was like these facts and these, the lack of opinion when it comes to science was what really drew it to me. Like the objectivity. The this is this is the way it goes. Exactly. The objectivity as opposed so, to the subject. So you'd say you're, I think it's right brain is like super logical and you're not, are you creative or do you like dream? Vividly? See, that's, that's, I feel like I'm kind of good at both, 
Like okay. I, I, I'm very artistic, so I did really well in like art. I, I was also in choir too, so I sang, I sang a lot, and I. So you were definitely, now. let's say, you're an overachiever. And then in high school, I'm gonna yeah, send so that original exactly, statement. That's really the way that it's coming across. Literally, um, valedictorian, but, star swimmer, <laughs> singer, uh, closet gay kid. <laughs> oh yeah, what we'll other? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which we can touch on that in a little bit. But oh, we will. I, I keep getting off trap off topic. Um I have with, no fact. with pharmacy school, um halfway through your senior year, every parent sits their kid down and says, What do you want to do with your life? And that's when you're like, Well, shit, I don't really know what I want to do with my life. Yeah. Um, I really need to start thinking about it. And so I knew I wanted to go into the medical field. Um, I've I'd always been like, oh, like my family had always joked about me being the first doctor that my family was gonna have. And Dr. Bowen, I, I, I don't like blood. So that is, that was difficult at first trying to find a medical field that didn't have blood. Uh-huh, but in case like, you haven't been able to tell, I can talk. So I can talk everybody's ear off. I'm a big people person. And so when I was going into picking different medical careers, I didn't want something where I'd be in the basement. I didn't want something where I'd be doing research behind the scenes. I wanted something where I'd be on the front line, talking to patients, getting to know people make it promoting a comfortable environment where people could ask me questions and so pharmacy kind of fit that I also didn't want to go to school for too long so it was two years less of school compared to most other doctorate programs yeah and then you specialize Finley was close enough I wanted to go to UNC but money did not really that wasn't really in the cards for me either what Um, is that University of Cincinnati uh, North Carolina oh I didn't know that UNC is North Carolina yeah, UNC North at Chapel Hill. They're the number one pharmacy school in the world. And I was okay. super excited when I got accepted because I don't accept a lot of out-of-state people for pharmacy. Um, but again, it just made more sense fiscally to be closer to home. That way, if I need anything, if there's vacations, I can just come home. Um, I would have to go to school two more years there. So regardless of how much I like the campus and the atmosphere there, um, I, I kind of had to pick Finley. And Finley has grown on me over the years. And so what is, is the normal for my decision? Sorry, is the normal pharmacy program like an eight-year program then? You'll get an undergrad Correct. and then you'll do four years of what, med school at farm? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, no, so you do four years of undergrad, four years of pharmacy graduate school. So it's not med school? I, I, don't, I don't think so. No. Okay, I'm kind of torn on that. So I had a, the last podcast I did was with Daniel from work and he said med school. I'm like, I don't know, is that just all medicine? Then you specialize later or pharmacy could be in that or I don't know. So it's kind of confusing. That's a really good question. I wouldn't just because my my program is so specialized. So mm-hmm. every class that I've taken in these past couple of years has been has been titled pathophysiology, pharmacology, and medicinal chemistry of, and then some some disease state or some bodily system that they're going to focus on all those pathophysiologies and medicinal chemistries of drugs in that class. So I I never had the we had the anatomy and the organic chemistry and stuff, but we didn't really have any it's it's pharmacy based like everything's like the drugs what they interact with where you're going to see them who can and cannot take them um what they're used for how how they were discovered what they look like under a microscope stuff like that so okay um i I didn't really get the i don't i didn't have to do as much physical assessment like being able to diagnose patients i didn't have to do a lot of understanding how to write prescriptions because i don't write prescriptions so it's so, a lot of specialty, a lot of specialty. So that's what I was going to ask you. What is, I know everyone hears pharmacy in the picture of the person behind the farm counter. Is that like what pharmacy is or what else can you do with that degree? Or what are you going to, what do you, kind of a career do you expect to have with that degree? Cause I have no idea. Uh, the question, just like when you're this halfway through your senior year of high school, what do you want to do with your life? Also, I'll exactly touch back on that. Okay. Last I, again. I was going to actually ask you about that question. Do you think the 18 is too young for having to be asked that question and specialize and figure it out? 
with that pressure that we're put on? I don't think anybody should be forced to make a decision without complete certainty, especially when it's one that's going to leave you with over a hundred thousand dollars in debt. You're never going to have complete certainty, but like, I don't know. I just, at 18, I wasn't ready for that question. So my personal opinion, the way that I would make it work would be at 18, they provide, here's some opportunities for you. Here's what it would mean for you in the long run. Um, Mm -hmm. One thing that I wish I could have done is a gap year. And, but when you take a gap year, it's really hard for you to be able to get that government scholarships. Assistance. Yep. More. Everything just disappears off the, off the face of the earth for you. And yep. so going into college right out of high school, you get FAFSA, you get unsubsidized and subsidized student loan assistance. You can have scholarships from high school. You can have scholarships from the college that you're applying to. But if you're applying as someone who's taken a gap year, it's like you're starting as an adult and not a high school graduate. And so I think that regardless of how many gap years you take, everybody should have that same opportunity to go to a four-year program at least and have that same FAFSA opportunity, student loan opportunity, scholarship opportunity. Because then I think people wouldn't feel so pressured to go to college right after they graduate. They would be more likely to, to sit down and actually reflect on what they want. And then maybe people wouldn't be changing majors as much yeah, Maybe people would be more comfortable with their decision. Yeah, so I guess the only other way you could do it is possibly like a community college. That's what I did right out of high school, and I still got all the government aid and everything. It pretty much was free, to be honest, with the Pell Grant and uh, whatever else, government assistance and financial aid and everything. So it was it was free, but then you're not at a university, and it is a different it's a different feel. I think the classes looking back were actually better quality now that I can look in retrospect, but at the time wasn't too into it. Going to community college, all my friends are going off to school and living somewhere else, and like you know, Lansing, Michigan, having fun at state and all that stuff. So it felt shitty. I still reflect on that if I made the right choice. Um, cause I didn't have that university experience. Now I'm in online school, so it's not at all anything similar, but I was curious because everyone I've had on the podcast, I asked them kind of similar questions about their life and nobody knows what they want to do at 18. And I don't think it's really fair to ask. So you could always get an undergrad in something general and most people do. And then they're forced four years later to confront the same question. They haven't really pondered that much. So like, I don't know. You've must've thought about it a little bit. Like what job do you think you're going to have? Cause pharmacy you can do anywhere. Right. So at least you're gonna have a job wherever yeah, you go. So pharmacy isn't just the guy behind the counter at the Walgreens or the CVS. That's what I imagine. Um, yeah. So I, I've done, I've done internships for cancer care pharmacies. So compounding chemotherapy medications um, and counseling patients on what they can expect side effect wise. Okay. Um, I've interned at hospitals. I've interned at community pharmacies. Um, I've been able to um, do vaccination clinics. So that was a really cool thing that I did in Pandora, Ohio. Can you give shots and like, stuff? Like what's the extent yeah, of your medical? So I'm, I'm vaccine certified. Oh, I congratulations. I can do anything a pharmacist can do. A pharmacist just has to be there. So um, that's, that's pretty cool. Like I have a lot of like free reign in terms of internship to try different things. Um, so the sixth year of our pharmacy program in the, in the, in the six year graduate school is called APPIES, which stands for Advanced Pharmacy Practical Experience. And it's basically, I get to decide six different rotations that I wanna go in depth with. And I spend a month at each one and I get to try ambulatory care pharmacy or geriatric pharmacy or military pharmacy. I, I get to pick where I want to go and what I'd like to study and what I'd really like to get a taste for. And then after you graduate, you can go and get a residency or potentially a job based off of one of those internships. So, so I like for- that. I don't really have to decide now, like I did in high school. I get the opportunity to dabble in a couple of things and then decide. 
Yeah, that should that should be standard. So that's funny. I asked a girl, she's literally got accepted to a clinical psych doctorate. So she had her under undergrad. And I'm like, you know, what do you want to do? Do you do you know what you want to be a clinical psychologist or what do you want to do with this degree after you get your doctorate? And she's like, I the beauty of my doctorate is I have six years to not think about it. And I'm like, you should be planning that. Why would you go spend six years of your life and you know, the clinical programs, most of them are funded, so you're not spending the money, but still, like you know, you're 30 when you get out, you should at least have a job that you want or so it's good that you get to dabble. So like, what is a ambulatory care pharmacist do as opposed to like a Walgreens pharmacist? What's the difference? Yeah. So, so there's two main branches of pharmacy, inpatient and outpatient. All right, same so way. inpatient is you're treating Mental a patient. It's like if you're in a hospital, like they, this patient came in, they're on a stretcher, they need pain medication, they need anti-infectious medication. So they don't get like different bacterial or viral diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, that is more inpatient. I'm treating that patient right here, right now. I don't need, or there's not really prescriptions running back and forth. It's more the doctors here. We need five milligrams of amiodarone to keep their heart beating. And we need this many milligrams of amoxicillin to prevent this MRSA infection, something like that. And, oh man, I I hope my teacher never hears that because those, those drugs were just examples and not entirely correct. But (laughs) It sounded um, good to me. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> say, say it like you mean, and people don't question it. But um, that is more inpatient. Outpatient is this person has already received treatment for their disease. They are now on maintenance therapy. So if they're drugs, they just need to take every now and then, or once a day, or once a week, um, stuff like that, to make sure that their disease state is managed and that they can live a healthy, pain-free, stress-free life with that disease state until they're either better or controlled. Um, and so okay. ambulatory care is more inpatient. It deals with um, rehabilitation um, in terms of like skeletal muscle injury. Um, oncological pharmacy is inpatient because you're usually administering that chemotherapy medication there. You're not going to give somebody an IV bag and send them home and say, yep, just hold it up above your heart. And right. once the bag runs out, you can pull the needle out and then you're just going to clean it. Like, no, like we're, we do all that for the patient. And then Walgreens is more like, okay, you need you need this oxycodone for your pain management. Here's the script. They gave us the script from the doctor. This is the proof that they can get this medication. And we give them the pills. We ask them if they have any questions. We talk to them, talk them through like side effects, ways they can take it, how to remember it. um, If it interacts with any of their medications, what to let us know if they experience um, stuff like that. And so there, there's a lot of difference. Um, And it's, it is, I'm an indecisive person. So going in after I graduate, having to decide what I'm going to do even after dabbling, I think will be difficult. But one thing that I was really worried about going into pharmacy right out of high school was my program is very specific. And so I was like, what if I don't like it? What if I get to halfway through year and I hate pharmacy and I don't have a degree, so I can't transfer anything anywhere. Um, And that really made me nervous. But thankfully, sorry, go ahead. No, no, sorry. Thankfully I've liked it. And something that I've kind of talked about with a couple of people is while I'm looking at military pharmacy or I'm looking at just retail pharmacy, so I don't have to do a residency, um, I can graduate, work a couple of years, pay off my student debt or travel somewhere and move somewhere and say pharmacy isn't for me. And I still have this doctorate and this master's. Well, one, I can use my master's to go do something. Right. It's business, right? Yeah. Yeah, Then you can do anything with that. The tile degree, but also... I could use pharmacy as my undergrad into a different doctor program. So okay. instead of go, like if I wanted to be a nurse practitioner, instead of going to school for four more years, I could go to school for two. And now I'm a nurse practitioner and a pharmacist. Okay. But now when I'm going to nurse practitioner school, I can work as a pharmacist and have the means to pay for my graduate level programming. Okay. So I, I 
I guess like pharmacy school might not even be my last six years of school. It really just depends on once I'm working, oh, this money is really nice. I don't know if I want to go back mm-hmm. to school or I want to kill myself every time I walk into this pharmacy. I have to go back to school. I have to figure out something else to do because I can't spend the rest of my life doing this. I have the option to be able to do that. And so no. that pr- provides a little bit of a load off. And so I guess really like still, and, at, and for everybody at any point in your life, the world is your oyster. And so don't let anybody back you into a corner when it comes to age or degree or status of employment. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, your degree is like a freaking gold nugget, in my opinion, because you're getting a doctorate in six years, which is pretty much unheard of. And you're getting a master's in business, which is weird to me that that's the combination they've chosen, but take it like that's, you're not going to have any, I don't think you're gonna have to do any more schooling. I guess if you're going to be an NPU can, that's what all the psych nurses do, but that's only because you get limited to what you can make as a psych nurse. But as a pharmacist, you're not really that limited and you can always go into business. So I do have a question. You can't, it's a weird legal question that just popped in my mind, but I'm curious because um, I've done all the HIPAA shit at work and like, you know, you have to be very careful how you speak in your own healthcare. If somebody goes to your pharmacy, say you are working at like a CVS or something where there's over-the-counter drugs and they ask you for a recommendation and then you get it for them and like they have an electric reaction or something over-the-counter, is that your responsibility? Is that your liability? Are you allowed to recommend over-the-counter stuff? Because I know you can't write scripts, but. Okay. So when it comes to recommending something that is over-the-counter, mm-hmm. um, one thing that's really nice in terms of liability or insurance when it comes to that kind of stuff is you are not a pharmacist and probably will never be a pharmacist, correct? Yeah. But you could also recommend an over-the-counter product to somebody, Yeah. correct? Okay. So when it, when it comes down to say somebody's like, oh, I've, I've been having this, this like head cold and like, I've just been a little congested and like, I've had like a cough and stuff like that. Like, what can I, like my allergies are really bad too. Like, I think it might be that, what can I take for it? And I say, okay, the number one recommended antihistaminic allergy medication would be Benadryl, diphenhydramine. It will, it's probably going to be the best thing for you. You should totally take that. Now where, what I would provide more as a pharmacist is what I would say is, okay, this medication is a class of medications that are um, generation one. And they do cross the barrier to your brain and can cause drowsiness. So if you need to this medication to treat your allergies, but you um, need to be able to stay awake at work, or you don't want to have that morning drowsiness while you're driving on your 30 minute commute, like that could provide some danger to you. That's what I would ask. So do you have any problems with staying awake at work? Do you have any, do you get enough sleep at night? Then this medication still might be good for you. If you're like, no, I'm super stressed. Like I, I work four 18 hour shifts a week. I get five hours of sleep. If that. Like, I just need something to get my rhinos to go away. I might recommend a generation two. Okay. So can you explain to me the generational drugs too? Because everyone, there's a lot of drugs in psychology that I've noticed are generation three. And I have no idea what that means. Oh, so that's schedule three. And we could talk about that forever. And so like, so generation is just um, when the drug was introduced. And so different, like they kind of divided them into properties. So generation one is it crosses the blood brain barrier, which can make you drowsy. Okay. And generation two is it doesn't, it's too big. It's too polar. Something's not working. It can't get into that, that, that neural pathway. So those drugs don't cause you to be drowsy. And so that would be like your Zizol or your Allegra, Fexofenadine. Those are, those are the more of the drugs that won't make you drowsy. That can still provide that allergy relief. And so if it was like a truck driver, I might recommend the fexofenadine as opposed to the diphenhydramine. Because it wouldn't cross the blood brain. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, and then in terms of the schedule, so that's just about addictive property. So schedule one being the most addictive, that's like heroin, amphetamines, MDMA. And then schedule five is like 
not very addictive, but we're still going to keep a hold on it. And so those, those ones will still be in like a safe because like people will rob them um, for making meth or rob it just because like they're addicted to the, the pain numbing qualities of it or so like stuff like that. So like schedule one is the most addictive schedule five is the least addictive schedule three is what you're saying at like a psych hospital um, could be something like um, sodium oxabate, which is used for like narcolepsy. Um, so that, that would be a schedule three drug that some people might be like, I just love the way it's just like knocked out. And like, it mm-hmm. has that addictive property to it. And so are so those, the, are those over the counter ever any scheduled drugs or no, no, there are scheduled drugs will never be over the counter. You absolutely okay. have to have a prescription and there's even controls on how much. You, so like a doctor could prescribe you a lot and you'd be, we might be like, I'm sorry, we can't give you more than this amount in a certain amount of time because it's so addictive we can't we can't dispense this medication for you so So. i mean you obviously know a decent amount about the medication if you have just from a moral standpoint so the problem i have with psychology and psychiatry is that some of the meds are necessary but they're not always necessary and when you go inpatient in a psych unit they force meds on you regardless of if you need them or not and that's not my call i'm not a psychiatrist but if you are a pharmacist and you think well this something's up here and i shouldn't be giving this, filling this prescription, are you allowed to not fill a prescription for somebody? Yes, absolutely. Oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Cause what is, um, Suboxone is like the opioid strips, Suboxone. Yeah. So anything that ends in Oxone or Morphone usually tends to be an opioid. Yeah. Okay. Cause I see like patients come and ask for that all the time. They ask for Adderall, just like stuff that I don't know, doesn't seem healthy for them or benzos are popular at the psych hospital. I was curious if you had any agency, cause that would be my moral dilemma with being in, in a profession giving meds, nursing included. This is why I'm not going to psych nursing because the psych nurses don't really have a choice what meds they're giving. They're going to give it to the patient because the doctor said to. So I, yeah. so, so I one wouldn't thing that's do really it. Interesting, especially when it comes to doctors in a psych hospital. So I, I'm very new and experienced when it comes to neurology and psychiatric medications because I, okay. I just did that module this semester. Cool. Um, but one thing that they've already drilled into us is you treat the patient, not the therapeutic level. So say like someone's taking phenytoin and that is a what sodium is that channel blocker and that's right. used for um, it's used as an anti-epileptic medication usually. Um, okay. And so the way that the way that we organize things is say you're supposed to have four to 12 micrograms per liter of blood. And this patient has 16 micrograms per liter of blood, mm-hmm. but they're not having seizures. They're not experiencing side effects. What do you do? Because they're outside of the therapeutic range, but they seem to be really well controlled on it nothing that is fine if they're above that level they're responding well to it same thing if someone was below it you don't want so if someone's below the therapeutic range but they're responding really well to the medication we don't want to raise it because you might induce side effects now you 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 had you had given giving them extra concentration that they don't mm-hmm. and psychiatric and neuro, neurologic medications are very different because it is such a subjective disease and a lot of times mm-hmm. you're saying this is what we're going to do for you because you've told us that this is what you're thinking and feeling mm-hmm. like there's like, you could, you could lie to me and yeah. say that you have been suicidal these past couple of months. And like, what can, what can we do about it? What medications can we give you to fix this, this suicidal mentality? And we kind of have to, there's a lot of professional um, standards and, mannerisms that go into assessing a patient yeah they're sure their cognition their risk their thought process their mood their affect their appearance attention memory skills learning like there's so much when it comes to psychology that if a doctor is really not seeing that patient and they're just saying this is the script we're going to write because they mm-hmm. have this ailment 
that's kind of concerning to me because yeah, they they're, don't not ever... that they're not treating that patient. They're looking at this patient as a chart with yeah, numbers and letters. Don't, and they don't really impatient. know what, what's working. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I was as, as much as I'd like to like be able to give you more on that, the most I can say is like, I, I would wish that the doctor had more time to get to those patients. Mm-hmm. And I wish that the pharmacist would say, well, here's the medications they're taking. Here's where they're at. This is the side effects they're experiencing. These are the disease states that are still bothering them. What can we do about it? Um, but pharmacists and doctors when it comes to neurology and psychiatrics are few and far between. And a lot of times doctors that don't even have specialties in neurology and psychiatrics will be the ones prescribing these medications. Yeah, it's messed up. It'll be like a gastroenterologist being like, okay, well, my my patient is depressed because they haven't been able to go to the bathroom in like a week or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to prescribe this duloxetine and then they're going to prescribe the the anti-constipatory medication and they're just going to go with that this page this doctor that specializes in like the gi tract yeah. is saying yeah we're going to give them a neuromedication because i i have this brief background on this neuromedication and so like it's really interesting but just to go off in a brief tangent one thing that's really interesting with pharmacy that i'm really excited about in the future is we have become healthcare providers in some states. And I think that it will transition more as we go on. So what does that mean? That I think is, yeah, exactly. So one thing that's really interesting <laughs> with that is the way that it's kind of looking is sometime in my lifetime, the doctor will now be the person that says, I've assessed this patient. This is what they have. This is what they're experiencing. This is what they're presenting with. And they're going to write down, this is what the patient has. And this is what they're afflicted with. And they're going to send it to the pharmacist. And I'm going to get it. And I'm going to say, okay, Joe Schmo has been on these medications for the past eight years. He now has this ailment. What do I think would be the best medication to provide to this patient? And so I would say, I would put this patient on this, doesn't interact with any of their medications, send that to the doctor and, or send the medication to that patient. And I, with my knowledge of medications, am giving that medication, the, they're giving that patient the best medication for their entirety. So, so they're not going to, have a black box warning for two of their medications Good. being mixed together when they shouldn't have. I don't could have you, to call can it. Can you explain really fast? Idiot. Just, yeah. Explain what a black box warning is for people who don't know. Oh, it's just two medications that can't be mixed. Yeah. All right. That was an easy yeah, way to say so, it. <laughs> like, so sometimes like a doctor will be like, Hey, can you give them these Suboxone strips? Okay. Well, if a patient is on a benzodiazepine, so that's something used to treat, um, you're mixing Insomnia. a ben- benzo and an oxy, and that's never good. And an opioid, and you should never mix a benzodiazepine with an opioid. Yeah. So, but the doctor might be like, I didn't know that this patient was on uh, a benzodiazepine, so I just prescribed the opioid because I knew they had pain. So the pharmacist has to go, hey, you prescribed this, but you can't mix these two. Can, would you like to do this instead? And the doctor goes, yeah, sure. And then the pharmacist yeah, right. goes, okay, I'll do that instead. And so that's just all, an unneeded phone call. Whereas if the pharmacist yeah. doctor just said, this patient has uncontrolled pain at this level, and they've been experiencing it for this long. This is what it's causing the pain. I can look at it and say, okay, this pain seems like it'll go in a month, or this is probably going to be lifelong pain. What can I give them for this medication? I can run the interaction checker myself, put the, put the patient on their way with their medication, not have to worry with all that phone call and stuff. But that puts a lot of a lot more risk and a lot more responsibility on the pharmacist. And so well, I yeah. think that'll take some time to really transition to that. But yeah, that's good though. Forward to so NPs now, nurse practitioners, those are also coming. And then what's the other one? Uh, physician's assistant, those are kind of like the middle grounds in between. But we I actually saw on the psych unit an NP, it wasn't that it was a physician's assistant went for the psychiatrist, was actually doing patient uh 
whatever counseling or sessions. And it was pretty interesting to me that a physician assistant could be doing psychiatry. So I think they're going to start. I think it's a necessary inner, I don't know, step in the hierarchy that needs to exist because right now the doctor has so much power, so little time, and they don't, a lot of the doctors prescribe similar psych meds to a lot of patients because they know like three or four that work pretty well for the most of them. So it'd be helpful if there was someone that knew more about it in between, you know, so that'd be cool. I think that like the pharmacist should have more power to, to do that, in my opinion, because you guys are also spending- honestly crazy even having this conversation with you because like I never realized how much I actually have have learned while being here. Like you, you forget about everything that you've been mm-hmm. through. And so to, so to anybody that's kind of been listening to this, this medication mumbo jumbo, or maybe they're just getting tips and tricks on if they're going to walk into a pharmacy, who can they talk to? Who can they ask stuff about? Regardless of what path you decide to take in terms of your profession, you really do become a specialist and knowledgeable about what you're going into. Yeah. Like one thing that I think, so this is something kind of like as, as a topic change, so we can get away from pharmacy for anybody that decides to listen. Um, <laughs> There's everyone I, listening. We have millions of listeners. Yes, everyone, the world, <laughs> and the world hears our podcast. One thing that is really interesting to me is I just hit up one of my exes and oh, God. I, I have had a, a coach my whole life. I have, I've never worked out by myself. There's someone telling me, these are the weights you need to lift. And this is how many times you need to lift them. This oh, is how really? many times you have to go back and forth on the pool. This is how many breaths you get to take. This is how, how fast you have to go, what percentage of effort you have to give like all the time, whether it be volleyball, track and field, cross country, swimming, anything. And now that I'm done with swimming, I have no idea what I'm doing. I, <laughs> I had no idea like what I'm doing to work out, like lifting weights. Like I, I know what body goals I want for myself, but I had no idea how to really get there. And my friend is a personal trainer. My ex was a personal trainer. And so I said, hey, would you be willing to like send me workouts and stuff so I, I can like figure out how to get in shape, right? I know what to do. And I really sat back and I ponder because I remember when I was young, I was like, I'm never going to need a personal trainer. Like that's a waste of money, like whatever. But even when it comes to like talking about COVID today, why would you not respect somebody's opinion who has spent their entire life studying the area that you have questions about. Mm -hmm. So I don't know anything about physical training. So I don't try to tell people how to work out or lift or swim because I've never coached. I don't know how to do that. But this, this man has had this experience. He's had these results. Like he's obviously been very successful at it. And I was like, Hey, can you help? And now I'm doing this weights program. I'm in my third week. I'm loving it. Like I'm actually feeling a difference and seeing a difference in, like I'm, I'm loving it or I'm getting my vaccine because the leading virologist says that this is what we should do. He studied it. He's the most profound knowledge center that we can have in one person on this planet. And what it seems that? like a lot of people are so quick to say, I don't want to ask for help from that person, or I don't want to trust the knowledge base that this person has. And so I hope that like with doctors in the future, as a pharmacist, they understand that I know a lot about drugs. That's what I went to school for. Or when someone's like, I don't know if I should get the vaccine because this Facebook post says this. Well, the leading virologist says this. The let leading study here. Yeah, on let me jump in with COVID this too. Or this personal trainer says, this is the way you should do. Like, why would I, why should I know any better than that person? You know? So with the vaccine, I don't think that it's going to kill you or anything. But my issue, I'm just saying, is not a, they don't know what they're talking about. It's a vaccine. So obviously, it, you know, it works and all vaccines work and we get them for school and stuff. But 
I don't like how they've heavy handed. I think the people have, I have an issue and I know a lot of other people have an issue with being heavy handed into getting it. You can't go to this or this or this. If you get tested, you can't go to Europe. You can't do this. You can't go back to work. You have to, like, I think hospitals are requiring it now. So it's not the vaccine that people have the issue with. It's just the, it feels like you're being, your freedom is being taken away to choose. And it's like the whole my body, my rights kind of a thing. And that's all. I think that's where that comes from, but I get it. Yeah. And I, I think, I think it's like the whole, I was gonna, but after you told me, I don't want it is to that. anymore. But yeah. yeah, but that's exactly what it is. Like, you know what I mean? No, like if I ever tried to do therapy on someone and I walk in and say, you're fucked up and you need to go to my therapy and you need to do this and this and this and try to advise them through all this and take away their freedom to, to do that, then I'm a really poor therapist. The same with yeah. if you're in pharmacy or if you're a doctor. So that's why people have such a big patient problem with inpatient psych units and why they're so wildly unsuccessful with patients because you're forcing them. So it's just that it's not, at least with the vaccine example, it's not with the, yeah, no one's trusting sure. the competence yeah. of the doctors that and they so don't like, want. So what I would do to, in, in regards to responding to people that feel that way, like they're being forced to do this stuff. Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of like reverting back earlier. Everyone wants to believe that they know best and it's sure. really hard to ask for help. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to ask for help, you know? And so when it comes to, should I get this vaccine or not? Well, there are some patient populations that actually shouldn't get the vaccine like immune compromised patients, patients have HIV, this live attenuated vaccine is probably not the best thing for them because the body's already undergoing a lot of infection. You know what I'm saying? I didn't know. I um, thought it, I thought it was safe and recommended itself for people. I thought it would be delivered. Oh, yeah, for but people there, there will home. always be populations of people. So like, so when you have HIV, you're usually taking immunosuppressant therapy. So your body yeah. doesn't just attack itself and kill itself. And so if you suppress that immune system, that system that's supposed to be fighting off bad things, and then the common cold comes in, your body has no resources to attack that common cold. Right. So it's really dangerous for people that have HIV to be around, if they're, if they're not on good treatment, to be around those kinds of situations and stuff. And so the biggest thing when it comes to why they're being so heavy handed with this vaccine and saying, you need to get this, you need to do this, is because there are some people that can't and still have to be around the people that chose not to. Okay. And so the people that are electing to not get the vaccine are really just putting the pregnant patients, the patients that are HIV positive, the patients that have cancer and are on immunosuppressant therapy that can't get the vaccine and aren't protected from it, have to be around people that could have made it so they were less likely to get it. And so looking at that from a different perspective, it's, it's not like you're getting the vaccine for you because I had COVID and I was asymptomatic. I didn't even know until my swimming team made me do a random test. Wow. Yeah. So like, so I, I found out, I was like, oh shoot, like I had COVID. How many people did I give it to without even knowing mm -hmm. how many people actually got sick that I don't know about because I didn't experience anything. And it would be really easy for me to say, oh, like I, I didn't get sick. Like I it just went right through me. Like I, COVID is not that big of a deal guys. It doesn't even affect you. And then there's the bodybuilder in Virginia. That was the picture of health that lost like 90 pounds because COVID just reamed his body. And he yeah. thought that he he was going to be safe, but you don't know what it's like until it gets to you. So it's more like people kind of have to take the initiative of, I'm going to do something not for me mm -hmm. it's or just that, someone else without any benefits. I think the hard like, part, that's a hard thing for people to do because people always ask, what do I get out of it? Yeah. So, and it's, it's hard to when, so when you have like the government involved in all of it too, it makes people less willing to do it because it feels like oh, they're suppressing yeah. your freedom. Yeah, for sure. So it gives yes, you someone to blame sure. and get angry at. So I just, I'm not saying I'm anti-vaccine. That's stupid. I haven't gotten it yet. I probably should, but um, I saw your face. Yeah. Okay. I get it. <laughs> no, no, it's, I think, I think everybody, 
I know a lot of people that haven't gotten vaccinated and I do think that it is your personal choice. Um, but I'd like, I think that if you haven't gotten the vaccine, then you should be researching and have a really sound basis as to why you're not getting the vaccine. Yeah. Because just that's, saying that's the government told me and I don't want to make someone look really unintelligent. No, I understand. And that's that's not true. that not that you haven't done the research or that people that have been around haven't done the research. Cause I think that there are valuable reasons to not get the vaccine sometimes. Like maybe I don't know your circumstance or situation. Um, so I think that's up to everybody. But I just want everybody to be as a pharmacist, I want everybody to be educated. The people that were afraid that it was going to make them non-fertile, that was a huge thing. Not possible. You will still yeah. be fertile if you get the vaccine. Um, that was like a huge thing, counseling patients saying, no, you don't have to worry about this. Mm -hmm. like, you'll be fine. People, the whole blood clots with um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, while taking birth control has more of a likelihood or smoking has more of a likelihood of causing blood clots than the vaccine did. But it was really easy for everybody to say, this vaccine is going to cause blood clots and I don't want to die from aneurysm. Yeah. So I'm just saying, I want people to be educated. And if you are making an educated decision as to why you're not getting the vaccine, then I cannot, I cannot fault you for that. And so I just want people to make sure that regardless of the decisions that they're making, that they go out and actually find resources, find databases, find studies that are supporting their viewpoint. So that way they have a, a ground to go off of, so to speak. Oh, I agree. Actually, in one of the biggest, the most famous misinterpretations of a study was the uh, vaccine and the autism in the psychology world, how it causes autism. And they wildly disproved it. But it was one study that, you know, proved something a lot of people wanted to prove, even though it didn't really. And yeah. it's confirmation <laughs> bias. And that happened in that whole entire, you know, world blew up that vaccines give you autism, which is there's really no scientific basis to that. But that's how studies always are. You know, there's agenda to both sides of the vaccine argument. And again, government's in it, there's yeah, politics sure. in it. It's silly and it should just be like you said, and like you got in sight, um, pharmacy, unbiased, scientific, rational, <laughs> but it isn't that. <laughs> well, I, I might even say that I'm biased because as a pharmacist, I'm very pro-vaccine because I've, yeah. I've studied them a lot. And so like, I, I haven't heard this. I actually haven't gotten the side of the, I don't want to get the vaccine side and, and all of the, so in terms of like, so politics, I'm not very, I'm not very well-versed or educated when it comes to politics. And so every time that the election comes around, I have to spend about a week, like digging into these policies and just a week. Like, what, is, what does that word even mean? Oh my <laughs> gosh. Like all this stuff, because I don't want to vote for something that I'm, I'm not too educated about, or I don't want to yeah. talk about something with somebody if I'm not going to be able to provide an opinion with some basis. It's, it's hard though, because you could spend your whole life in politics, searching, researching one candidate. And it's so hard to find truthful things on them. And, Exactly. Politics exactly. is exhausting. You always say one thing and then the other thing. Like something I mean, somebody else says the other. This is Which why, is why like actually this, this is perfect circling back. Uh, I that's why I ask for help. Like that's why mm -hmm. so my dad is a conservative Republican and my mom is a liberal Democrat. And so we right. sat down in a room and I was like, I need you guys both to give me the sides of your story. And when we came to a point where it was like, we're at an impasse because they say this is true and they say this is true. Mm -hmm. We fact check it and prove somebody wrong. And now we know that this is true. Yeah, so that's hard. a really valuable way for me to get kind of like the big hit points for both sides because I don't know anything or with personal training. I didn't know anything. I don't know what I'm doing. And I think it's really good to ask for help with that kind of stuff because these people have spent a really long time studying and learning. And it's kind of disrespectful to say, well, I think I know better. Yeah, really fast. It is, I just want to say this. So psychology is huge into research. That's pretty much what you do in psych if you get a doctorate is learn how to do as objective as possible scientific methods. So um, fact-checking is really hard. I think that's why people are so confused in, in politics. And then they just take like a radical view because it's easier to take a radical view 
and just be a hardhead than actually have to dig into each one of your views really difficultly and critical things. So that's hard. I've been trying to do politics for a long time. I was, when I was 18, I'm 26 now, I worked for Governor Snyder in Lansing. I had had like an internship and I looked him up. He's conservative. I'm sure everyone knows the Flint water crisis. He got blamed for it, but it wasn't really, it wasn't handled properly, but it wasn't his fault for the pipe. So another political shit that should just gotten fixed better, but it's hard to find objective information. So even like Trump now or Biden, like you'd look for 10 years on the internet and read books and you don't know if it's true. So it's just hard to do fact-checking um, in politics. It isn't observe. It's not objective ever in politics. So it's frustrating. Yeah. So I'm very logical too. I like objective facts. I like to ration things out and it's hard for me to do that. It's so hard. I want a political view. So that's why I think all these little podcasts are popping up with people that have their other opinions and try to find truth. And like, I don't know, you have like, Jordan Peterson. Like, so the, if anybody listens to this, any podcast or this podcast in particular, I hope that they're not listening to it and thinking, Oh, Nathan said that this president should have been president. So that's the right answer. Like, like and a lot of people do go into podcasts with more reputable people. Like say it was like a celebrity. Somebody did a podcast yeah. with a celebrity and they're like, Oh, Ryan Reynolds said that I should get the vaccine. So obviously I should get the vaccine now. And it's sad that in today's society, he has more pull than Dr. Fauci when it comes to vaccines, you know, but like people are going to listen to the people that they look up to the people that they know and stuff like that. And like, it's just kind of crazy. Like, so like, I hate to admit this because I never want to come across as an unintelligent person, but I literally voted for the president based off of one issue. Like I'm, I based my entire vote off of the issue that was most important to me. And it was, I, I want to be able to get married someday. Which president Biden? Yeah. So I voted for Biden because under the Trump administration, I could not get married in some states and I could not adopt children in many states. And so I was like, I don't, I don't want the America that I live in, this free country, to be something that dictates who I get to love, how many people I get to bring into that loving family, and where I have to raise that loving family. Like, so to me, that was like, sure, there are a lot of things that I don't agree with Biden on, but I was like, this part directly affects my life. And this is the one that right now I feel like I'm mostly interested in. And so like that's that is that is why I voted. And I hate to be that one subject voter. But I think a lot really, of people do. That's me, yeah. But that's what happens. I mean, it's like, it's it's a good thing that every American can vote, I guess, because you're dispersing all that responsibility between so many people because there's it's just too complex. And there aren't, 90% of the people that are voting aren't critical thinking. They're not actually researching. It's it's a blessing and a curse that we all have the power. But you know what I mean? But what's the other and alternative? It's the, same, it's the same as just social media or it's just the same mm-hmm. as... Any, like any, there's no critical thinking. It's, 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 this was my limited experience. I'm providing you with my limited experience. Mm-hmm. Take it as you will, you know? Yeah. And it makes finding information difficult. But it does. I've, I didn't vote for Biden. Especially in small town Midwest and mm-hmm. <laughs> the gay community, finding any information on that growing up was next to impossible, especially when you didn't, I didn't get a phone until I was a friar eighth grader. Okay. Oh, Yeah. And so that was like, like once I got that and like being able to now research these things about me or other things, I was like, wow, like all this information, that's so cool. You know, like I, I had this very myopic point of view beforehand. Yeah. So if anybody is um, thinking about like getting into politics or anything or anything where you have a strong opinion, just critical, you don't even have to find critical think about your opinions. If you articulate and you write out what you're thinking, or you talk like an intelligent intellectual conversation with somebody, 
where it's not hostile, you're going to force yourself to actually articulate what you think. And same with philosophy. It's very, very helpful to do that. But also try to find like actual primary sources for stuff because secondary, don't please don't use daily mail and make decisions off of that. You know, there's so much garbage, garbage sources of information that are just designed to, to say catchy things and grab your attention. And it works because again, it's easier to make an opinion and not critically think. And that's, that's what you know, people are. We're lazy. We all do it. So um, I do want to ask you a question. I know you wanted to get off pharmacy, but I do want to ask you like a philosophical question. Um, okay. No, because this is a problem I have with the current system of healthcare in the United States. So again, I'm not anti-medicine by any way, shape or form at all or anti-meds. They're necessary. Even the psychology world, some of them are necessary for people that really can't function properly. I think from my experience seeing that. So do you think that medication in general is highly, highly overprescribed? getting into the exact field that's doing the prescription. I guess you're not prescribing, but you're definitely contributing. So you must have an opinion on this, right? So, yeah. So here, how about this? This is the way that I would view it. Um, so this was, this is based off of a philosopher from Greece and Socrates. the quote comes, the quote, no, the quote comes from, comes from when medication really started. And so I wouldn't say that we overprescribe, but I would say we as a society over depend. So a patient has a 70 hour a week job waiting tables and they are barely making ends meet. Mm -hmm. You know, they eat at the restaurant because they get a free meal. They don't have to pay for that meal. It gets written off on their expenses. It's just another thing that they don't have to worry about. Mm -hmm. They go home. They just work 10 hours that day talking to people that didn't respect them and didn't care about what they did for them that day. And they don't want to go work out. They're tired. So they, go and lay in bed and they eat that tub of ice cream because you know what? They deserve it after that long day of service that a lot of people didn't appreciate. And this patient continues this trend for years. Okay. And they become obese. Now creating that problem wasn't hard. So now this patient is at a crossroads. She has high cholesterol. She has high blood pressure. She's overweight. Does she take an anorexiant? Uh, a torvastatin for her cholesterol and lisinopril for her blood pressure. And now on paper, she is this healthy person or does she hit the gym, start eating better and find a different job that allows her to have a little more freedom during the week. It is so easy for Americans, or I think people in general, because as we stated earlier, we're, we're lazy. We want convenience. It's so much easier to say, well, I don't want to eat that broccoli. I want to keep eating cinnamon rolls. So I'm just going to take this anti-hyperlipidemic medication for my cholesterol, and I'm not going to change my lifestyle at all. So when this patient comes into the doctor and the doctor's like, your cholesterol is really high. You need to work out. You need to eat this kind of stuff. Like you need to do these things better. And the patient says, okay, yeah. And then comes in next time and nothing's changed. Right. The doctor's like, well, I don't want this patient to die from like uh -huh. just heart overload or different it's, parts of their body just getting lack of circulation so it's like the the, the doctor's like well then we're going to give you this cholesterol medication yeah and so all of these medications are being prescribed to fix problems that dieting Aren't necessarily medication out, right talking to your friends about problems mm -hmm. keeping positive people in your life like all these things that you should just do to live a healthy lifestyle people aren't doing or like for example like having sex a lot of people think oh like i i don't want to get pregnant so i'm going to take birth control mm -hmm. and then birth control messes with their hormones so then yeah. to get rid of the nausea they'll take an anti-emetic and then that anti-emetic causes this side effect and so they'll take a medication for that all because they wanted to be able to have sex without a condom yeah 
Depressed even people though you are... should still be having sex with a condom. Yeah, so, so because they're like, it's just easier and more convenient for me to take one pill a day. And it feels better than having to put a condom on somebody else before I go into this, this relationship. People are more reliant on those medications. So to, to end up my long-winded answer, I don't think that people are over-prescribing. I think that we're, I think in some cases we are over-prescribing. Yeah. But most of the time it is the doctor is giving medications because these patients or their families don't want, or their friends don't want to help make an actual change in that person's mm-hmm. life. So that way they live longer, happier and healthier because it's just easier to take two pills at night. Yeah. So you see this a lot in the psychology world too. There are medical doctors, not, you know, not psychiatrists prescribing antidepressants or ADHD medicine. And instead of trying other methods, CBT for AD, you know, ADD, it's a lot of syllables um, and stuff like that. Or, you know, like you said, there's a thousand ways to make your mind feel better on depression that isn't an antidepressant. And it's actually like exercise. They've done a bunch of clinical trials that are valid scientifically and peer reviewed that exercise is just as good for your mind as antidepressants. If you're going to kill yourself and you're that depressed where you're completely suicidal, take them because it's the easiest thing, like you said, and that's going to save your life. But the same thing, like, so there's a whole field of psychology it's called health psychology. And they look at the biosocial cycle approach, something like that. And um, they look at the person as a whole. And it's almost like that field was designed for preventative care. Um, so like you have high blood pressure. Why don't you literally eat healthier and go work out. And that should actually take care of your hypertension. Um, and people don't do that. So it is, it is the patient's fault, but I think the doctors are also the psych doctors that I've seen from my experience, I'm inpatient. So it's different from outpatient, but they're going to prescribe medication. You have to get to a therapeutic level to leave the hospital. That's the state, you know, legislation. If you're at a therapeutic level and you leave the hospital and then something happens, well, we cross the liability off. So the medication's been checked. So it is a given it's, it's both situations, the patients and the doctors, but I was just curious what your idea was on it because you're going into the exact profession that gives meds out. So that's why I'm not doing yeah. nursing because I don't want to give meds out. And I think it really does come down to almost, almost, I say almost every single mm-hmm. state because some things are genetic. So like, like type two, type one diabetes, like your body just doesn't produce insulin. Right. And like that's how you, you Like that's like, that's why, that's why insulin pens and different types of medication were invented. So like, because these people actually can't help themselves. They're right. Like, like someone can look super healthy and die because they can't absorb the sugar that they're eating. So yeah, that's different. Insulin, yes, it's different. But then there are other medications like we've talked about, like the antihypertensives, the, the anti-cholesterol medication. And it's even even antipsychotics or stuff like that, like like especially when it comes to like narcolepsy or insomnia, which is what mm-hmm. we just I just had an exam over it today. And it's the, the first line treatment for so many disease states is homeopathic or lifestyle changes, lifestyle modifications. Stop smoking. That's yeah, like, it's it, like, stop smoking. Turn your phone off an hour before bed. Um, in the bedroom, the bedroom is only for sex and sleep, nothing mm-hmm. more. So like if you're going to study, don't go in your bedroom. Like stuff like that. Like don't, don't, even little things. Like it's like, don't eat right before bed. Eat two hours before bed. Yeah, and I've heard all the like sleep tricks. Like, yeah, like, and there's like, there's, there's so many sleep hygiene habits or, mm-hmm or blood pressure hygiene habits or lung habits, like stop vaping or stop smoking, take your medications this way, or like for gastroesophageal reflux disease, when you eat, stand, just don't lay down right after you eat. And maybe the, the stomach acid won't leak so much into your esophagus, like stuff like that. There are so many ways that we can fix things ourselves, but we're, we just don't want to change. Humans are so resistant to change. Yeah. And change is new, change is different, change is hard. 
And so nobody really wants to see that difference. But the people that do, the select few that do, try to go to the weight room to see what they can do to make a difference. The people that eat healthier and, and meal prep and, and really see that difference. The people that say, you know what, I'm going to go out tonight and I'm going to make two new friends and I'm going to hang out with them and I'm going to hear their perspective on life. And maybe I'll be able to talk to them about some of my problems and like maybe we'll really be able to help each other. All three of those things are way better for your health than any chemical can provide to you. Yeah. Well, that, that's so hard for people to understand. Like when you scroll through Instagram, how many times do you scroll through and you see this person that's like, oh, after a year of working hard, here's my transformation mm-hmm. or a simple change in my diet, like showing them meal preps, like this is what I look like now and this is what I used to look like. And you're like, wow, like, that's so crazy. Well, those people that while sometimes people get people get annoyed by them are really just so ecstatic because they actually understand that working hard or changing something and making an adjustment has far more ramifications than depending on the medication, so to speak. Yeah, no, I agree. So I think actually I have a theory that a lot of psychosis and things that people take psych meds for are actually trauma and things that they need to deal with without meds. That's my theory, but I don't know if it's true or not, but like, you know, psychosis. So I, it's very interesting. I used to work on the guy's unit in the male adult unit, um, in my hospital and guys would have psychosis or they have schizophrenic symptoms or whatever. There's like schizoaffective, all this shit. Um, they like to throw labels out in psych, but I don't like the labels so much, but they would be talking themselves on the hallway and you could tell they were engaged in a conversation that wasn't happening in the real world outside of themselves, I guess. And they'd be like talking to someone about their mom and their relationship with their mom. And I think that's so interesting. I'm like, that sounds like kind of like a Freudian toxic environment with the, the mother. And it was just interesting to me. I'm like, I wonder if that person's never received therapy. I've asked them, they've never done that, but they're on a lot of psych meds to quiet the voices down. But I'm just curious if they want, you know, went and did some like psychoanalytic, really trauma-based therapy, if they could kind of get that psychosis going that way. So I don't know, it's just interesting, but health psychology, if you're interested in it, it's kind of like that, what you, what you want pharmacy to be. So that crossroads between the doctor and the human as a whole and medication. So that's a cool field. So it is, it is growing. We're getting there, but the system right now is just fucking disgusting with the medication. Oh, no. And it'd be, it'd be so nice if a patient came in and they had high cholesterol and we were like, okay, well, because you're not going to change it overnight, we're going to give you this, this anti-hyperlipidemic medication mm-hmm. and the patient. Goes, okay. Well, what can I do? So I don't have to take this medication. Yeah. You can say, okay, well, we're going to prescribe, we're going to give you a 30 day supply. So a month, here's some lifestyle changes that you can make. And then that patient comes in next month and they're doing good, but they're not quite there yet. So we mm-hmm. give them a lower dose of resuvastatin or something like that. And then they come the next month and they're looking great, like feeling good. And we're like, okay, we're going to try this, just this like vitamin. Like it, it encourages cholesterol metabolism. Like we're just going to do that. And then the month after that, that patient is looking and feeling a lot better. They don't need the medication anymore. Mm-hmm. And we get to say, you know what? It sucks, but like, like, bye. Yeah. Like hope we don't have to see you again for it doesn't this, suck. This cholesterol stuff. You know, like, like it doesn't suck it, as much as like to say goodbye to a patient. It's good to see like, Oh, this is the work. And this is the counseling that we had, like, and it, and it did work. But usually if someone starts a, high, a cholesterol medication, they're on it for life, blood pressure medication on it for life. That's the only way you want to say goodbye to a patient. Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. right. <laughs> okay. So awesome. This goodbye. is actually great information about, um, the pharmacy industry. It gives me a lighter picture, to be honest. I was kind of coming into We're not even just pharmacy, going back to therapy too. Therapy mm-hmm. has so much stigma. Not even like, yeah. not even talking about the medical field or like a psych hospital or pharmacy, like therapy. Mm-hmm. So therapy, I want to be in- like, not even the therapy that you pay for, just the therapy talking, talking about your issues, talking about mm-hmm. your problems, talking about things that make you want to cry, that make you want to scream, that make you want to jump for joy. Like even having this podcast with you, 
I've already noticed like two or three thoughts that I was like, you know, what? I don't really think I've ever said that out loud. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting that I felt that way. And I never said anything about me feeling that way. And like, it, it is enlightening. It is empowering to be able to say something that you've wanted to say for such a long time. And yeah. that's like, so like to kind of branch into another area of the gay community, a lot of people are like, well, why is that? Why, why do you have to be so gay? Why do you have to be so feminine? Why do you have to be so flamboyant? Out I do ask that and though. I'm that, that yeah, guy. Like, oh. Exactly. But it's, but you have to think of it in the way of this person, at least for me, I was subdued and pushed this trauma down of, I like guys and I'm not supposed to. And I'm, I'm just going to, I dated a girl in high school and I honestly thought that I was going to marry this person have a life, have kids, and just never come out of the closet, never have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so when people like me and you come out and have this, this release, it feels so good. Yeah. That you want to make everybody know that this release felt so good. And it feels so amazing to say something that you haven't been able to say, to, to deal with that trauma, to get it off your chest and to finally be happy. Like, that's why there are so many flamboyant out there, gay in your face people, mm-hmm. because their, their, their whole lives up to a certain point was, I can't be that. I can't be who I really am. And like, it feels so good to finally be that. I have to make up for the past 19 years that I didn't. Yeah, I get that. You know, like that's like, but that's the power of therapy though. Like talking about anything, getting stuff off your chest, being, being open, being communicative, like it feels good. Yeah. So I think I actually, I've been looking into master's programs. I think I'm looking into a clinical psych master's so I can become an LPC as a licensed professional counselor. I don't want to get a doctorate because it's six more years, but the counselor is only two. And that's kind of what I'm thinking of. So I'm going to talk therapy, but that's, it's so cool because I've had these episodes with people I've known for a really long time and it's just seeing them articulate something that they've never gotten to articulate or had the chance to talk to out loud is so cool. And I don't know, it's inspiring. And we both leave the conversations like on this, I don't know. Serotonin yeah, just like enlightened. It's yeah. So one thing that I wanted to talk about in this podcast was, uh, so for the LGBTQ community listening, I'm assuming you know what Grindr is. For yep. those that don't, Grindr is like a gay hookup app, basically. So people that just want consensual sex, no strings attached. It's a big place for that. Swapping mm-hmm. dudes, very, very toxic environment. But <laughs> as toxic as it can be, it is also a place where a lot of people go and don't put a profile picture and they get to see who's out there. Mm-hmm. They get to see who's been dealing with stuff like them. And they get to see these people that have a similarity to them, whether it be this one tiny similarity of homosexuality in their life. Mm-hmm. And sometimes like, sometimes I'll use it to make a relationship, make a friendship. Sometimes I'll use it for a hookup. But sometimes I'll also change my pictures to me just holding a gay flag. And I'll say, hey, if you need help coming out, like, talk to me. Like, I, I had a hard time coming out. And they call him the come out queen. And, and I, say it again. They call him the come out queen. The come out queen. Yeah, exactly. In my small town, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I, behind my back. Who knows? <laughs> he used to be but the best swimmer ever. ever. Like, so to date, to date, I have helped now 38 people wow. come out of the closet. And each time that I do, I try to like FaceTime these people and like, like talk to them about these things. And it's like, it's so crazy that me, a random person, that they didn't know cha- literally changed their life because coming out changes yeah. your life. It, like being able to be like that out person is like amazing. And not that I'm a therapist by any means, but just being someone who's like, I'm going to listen to your problems and I'm going to say, this is what I would do if I were you. Like that is, it is so crazy how much of a difference 
that anybody can make like so 38 people out of 8 billion on the planet like sure it doesn't seem like that many people but like those people can now go out and say this was the quote that I was provided or this was the advice that I was provided this was my experience now and I get to help you do that too and so so I turned the toxic environment thing into this beautiful thing that is one of my favorite things to do and like it brings people to tears It, it it provides this experience that they never thought they were going to have because like me, they were like, Oh, I'm just going to not be myself. I'm just going to deal with it. And I'm going to, I'm going to become this thing. And, and that's just how it's going to be. That's just what's in the cards for me. That's how my life is. And I stopped that negative thought process because I just listened and people talked about it. And I talked about my trauma with those people and coming out and I dealt with that helped me deal with it too. It just all, it just all comes around talking. Yeah. Can I make it psychological? Yeah, deal with stuff for sure. Absolutely. So just really quick as a PSA, if anybody has that mentality about life and helping other people, you should go into mental health care because that's what they need. And there's not enough people like that, truly. And then also from a psychological standpoint, do you know uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs? I don't. Okay, so pretty much there's a hierarchy triangle. It was never a triangle, but I'm going to oversimplify. So once you have like your food and shelter and your social needs and all this connected, you hit the top peak of the triangles, transcendent experiences. And you have like pretty much is where you're no longer biased, towards anyone, you have no hate, no negative emotion towards anyone else. And you're helping other people kind of become their best self. So that's like, they put Gandhi and stuff in that, in that field. It's literally but, you're doing, you're doing something to benefit other people's yeah. other people with lack of self gain. So that, that's good. So that means you're at the highest level of, you know, you're secure and good in yourself and you can start giving back. So that's like the whole point of having these conversations and kind of the drift proofing thing is getting to that point where you're secure and you can start giving back and sharing your gifts with the world. Like, Anyone can do what you just did on Grinder. Anyone. I might actually do that. That's like a great idea. It, literally, small acts of kindness. You never know whose life you're going to change. Somebody gave me a note from the psych ward. I had a conversation with him for like half an hour one day on my break um, in the unit. I don't know. And he gave me this letter inside, changed his life and helped him get off of a, he was just there for a drug, kind of like drug relapse or he was, what's it called when you're coming down from drugs? Detoxing. But like, it's just those little experiences. Yeah. It's those little experiences. You can make a difference wherever you are in life. You don't have to wait till you're a doctor or till you're 40 or 50 and it doesn't it doesn't do have it. to be medical literally yeah. yesterday was a pharmacy picnic and two of my <laughs> professors were playing volleyball and on like on this like sand courts next to the picnic and so i took off my shoes and socks and stuff and and went out and played volleyball with them and these are my pharmacy professors like they were the exam proctors for my neurology exam today we were laughing talking about things that weren't pharmacy related and just having a good time, like making that connection. And the next day that, cause like nobody was coming to play with these professors. It was just me. And I got some of my friends to come play with them too. But the next day she brought me a piece of paper and it was laminated. And it said to my something hustling partner in sand volleyball yesterday, like she, she gave me this, like a cutout of a, of a playing card and called it the ace of ace try. Cause that's her last name's ace try. And on the back, she put like a picture of herself and upside down and then like the letter O because that's what her name starts with. And like basically just made this card for fun and wrote on it and laminated it and gave it to me after the exam today. Like I was just going out to play volleyball and I had such a good time doing it and just listening to the conversation because no student ever listens to the professor and understands that they have a personal life too or that they laugh. They make jokes that are inappropriate and they go out and drink with their friends on the weekend sometimes. Like that connection was so valuable to that professor that she gave me this small token of gratitude. It makes my day. 
I, I made her day and it wasn't something that was medical. I didn't have to supply any knowledge. It cost you anything? Yes. I just went and played volleyball with somebody. My mom always says, and I still do this to this day, give one genuine compliment a day. It can't be something that you're just like, oh, like, yeah, like I didn't, I haven't done it today. I had to tell somebody something. So I just told them this, even though right. it wasn't true. Right. It has to be truthful and it has to, it has to be meaningful to you. It has to be something you actually believe. You have nothing to lose. If they rebuff your compliment, so what? Go on with mm-hmm. your day. Right. But more often than not, those people are so shocked to hear this good thing about them. It's empowering, lifts them up, makes them feel good. And making other people feel good really does make you feel good. Yeah, it's so the most like, meaningful thing you can do. Exactly. And so like it's something like one compliment a day. I give one genuine compliment a day. Oh my gosh, did you get your haircut? It looks really cute. So I like that you tried bangs. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that flower dress, where did you get it? That's like awesome. Those are like very physical things. But like someone said something in class and you could be like, I just want to, I just want to let you know that the way that you worded your question when you stood up today was like really helpful. And I didn't, I had the same question and I was too scared to ask. So I really appreciate that. And I appreciate your bravery. Like keep, keep, stay strong, something like that. They're like, oh, like I was kind of nervous too, but now I feel more confident next time I'm going to ask this question. Like there are way bigger things than just the physicality, but start off with the physical. So it's easier. And attitude is gratitude really, really helps have a positive outlook on life. Makes you feel better about things. I agree. It's, it's awesome stuff. So we've talked for a while. Um, do you have anything else you want to add in any kind of insight on life or advice to anyone who's kind of feeling completely lost in their life or depressed or nihilistic or thinking about going into healthcare, like anything you could add other than what you just said was great. Oof. You, you don't even have to. So many, yeah. There are so many topics that we could get to and talk about and um, that we didn't get to that we even talked about, like maybe we'll get to this, but no, my, my name is Nathan. You can, Find me on Instagram. I'm going to put your Instagram. And if you have questions about anything or you wanted to discuss things with me about something more, then yeah, for sure. And I'm sure that you provide or extend the same hand to people listening. And I think that you're doing a really good thing with your podcast. So I hope people really benefit from it. Thank you. You said Nathan A. Bourne, right? Yes, correct. Because A is my middle initial. So Okay, I'll put it on the show notes. Well, thank you so much. This was perfect. So everything was great. I hope you enjoyed this too. I really enjoyed the conversation. I I did as well. It was fantastic. Good. You have a good night, Nathan. Thank you. You as well. Bye. Bye.